you're here this evening, you weren't here this morning, you're picking up on the second part of a message we started this morning. We have in the last three weeks, four weeks, we'll continue for another two or three weeks beyond this, we're doing a mini-series that's dealing with the social issues because we're into election time. The reason that we're doing it is because righteousness, according to the Word of God, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We've been making the argument that according to the word of God, if we want God's blessings upon we as a nation, we have to do what is right and appropriate. That includes in some of these social issues. That includes some of those areas. The topic that we picked up this morning is dealing with abortion. We are in Psalm 139. We're going to return to Psalm 139, where in the middle of this text, he makes this comment that we looked at in more in depth this morning. But let me just get you there, and then we'll come back to this passage as we go through the quiz and we'll come out of it and we'll go to Psalm 139. So if you have your Bible, just turn there, hold your finger here. We're going to be reading right now and then we'll come back to it again. He says in Psalm 139, as he is praising God and giving his, his, his worship of the Lord and thanksgiving to the Lord, he said in verse 14, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works that my soul knows right well. My substance was not hid from you when I was made in secret in the curiously wrought, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. He's talking about when he was in the, his mother's womb and how God was overseeing his formation and he even goes on to say, he makes this comment, he says that your eyes did see my substance when it was yet immature or just in the very early process being unperfect. And in your book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned. The idea is God has a blueprint for each one of us. God has a plan. He has gifts. He has talents. He has personality traits that he puts into each one. And when you were being formed, he was even putting that together and fashioning you. He says in the continuance were the fashioning that is in his blueprint. And when there was a, yet none of them they weren't complete. How precious also are your thoughts unto me, O Lord. And he goes on and makes some other comments that we're going to pick up in a few minutes. And so we've made this comment, made this suggestion, this suggestion this morning that from the word of God, God is involved with the unborn. He is very concerned about them. That doesn't mean it translates into our society. We said this, okay, we asked this question. In the U.S., a legalized abortion can be performed, and there's these different options. Can it be only in the first three months, only in the first six months, or any time prior to the birth of a child. In the United States, which one of these is legal? It's C. It can be any time up to the birth of the child. It can even be in the third uh, trimester. It can be after the viability of a child, which right now in our society, in the medical field, they say that after the 21st week, the child is, is very viable. They will do whatever they can to, if there's a child prematurely born, to really work with that child beyond that 21st week. But they can be aborted after that time period. Number two, oh, oh, oh. Let me give you a warning. Okay, some of you will not like this. I'm just going to show a couple pictures. A couple pictures that give you the indication of what happens when they want to abort a child who is beyond that 21st week. Close your eyes if it's going to bother you. Okay? The reason I'm doing this is not to be sensational, but I do think this is a reality. That there is a lot of uninformed people. When people go in and they think it's just an easy procedure, it's not going to be anything difficult... It is a difficult procedure. There is a lot of trauma that comes, as we'll see in a few minutes. We also know this, that some of the way that they do the abortions are three different, or two basic methods. One is a saline solution that they insert so that the salt in the solution basically burns the infant to a death state, and then there's a delivery. 
Or, number two, one of the ways that they often do it is, there's three ways. One is a suctioning method, that they use a suctioning and they pull the baby apart. The other one is a cutting method, a DNA method, where they go in and they will scrape the inside of the womb and they will sever the different limbs of the child apart and then they will have to do a procedure to take out the skull that will not come out. And so, if you do not care, do not look. Okay, in that sense. I'll give you some other statistics. In 2012, 90% of the abortions were in the first trimester. But beyond that, there was another 140, some will say 150, performed in the second trimester when these children were totally identifiable. There is, with that, beyond that, 1.3% of the abortions, the last year that the stats were kept, were done beyond the 21st week when that baby would have been viable. So you have a lot of uh, different things happening that are quite traumatic. Abortion is legal in the United States as long as it's to save the mother's life in case of rape or incest, both of the above for any reason. It's for any reason. By law in the United States, abortion on demand. Abortions were first legalized in 73 based upon the right to protect her life. The fetus is not a human being. The mother's right to privacy. It is C. The argument, we showed you this morning how the argument had nothing to do because they could not medically, they did not have support to say that it wasn't a living human being. All the stats we gave you this morning proved just the opposite. The argument was for the mother's right to choose. We also dealt with her right to choose was done earlier than the pregnancy. The average annual number of legalized abortions in the United States in recent years is averaging which one of these? It's right around C, over a, right around a million. Uh, the last, it's gone down a little bit from the peak of 1.2 million this past year. The record seemed to indicate was like 900 and, 960,000 were done. Let's go a little bit further. The annual percentage of all pregnancies in the United States, excluding miscarriages that end in abortion, is 10, 20, third, or over half. What'd you put down? Okay. It used to be C. It is now at 21%. Okay, 21%, that's one out of five pregnancies. And one out of five, we say it went down as it's a good thing. One out of five pregnancies in the United States is, is an abortion. The uh, annual percentage of all abortions done in the U.S. due to health risks to the mother or the, pregnant, uh, the mother or pregnancy is due to rape or incest between 25 and 50%, 10 and 25, over 50% or under 5 it is D. Okay? It's under 5%. And uh, in fact, the Gutenberg survey that they had done, New York Times did this report. Here in the last year, from what they had, Gutenberg did a survey of those people, less than 1% who had the abortion st stated that it was due to rape or incest. Less than 1%. Though that is the classic argument that we need to protect those who this happened, it is a less than 1%. In fact, of those 1%. 95% stated that there was other reasons as well. So it wasn't because of the rape or incest. There was multiple reasons. Let's take it a little bit further. 100% of abortions are lethal. Less than 1% are done to save the mother's life. So we're talking less than 2% of the re most recent statistics have to be what the mother's health was, in or health was in danger or number two, it had to do with rape or incest. So less than 2% of a million people being killed was because of those arguments that are being propagated and used to justify all the other deaths. 
will go a step further. Since abortions were legalized in the U.S., the rate of maternal deaths resulting from complications has decreased, increased. The reason I ask you this is one of the arguments made for abortion is if we don't make it legal, ladies will go to back alleys and many of them will die because the procedure will be botched or there will be difficulty to save the ladies' lives. We have to legalize taking the infants' lives. Statistical fact. Did the number of maternal deaths because from abortion decrease or increase since it's been legalized? It has increased. More ladies have died because of, the, because of the botched situations. Even though it's been legalized and it's now in different centers, there are still complications that result in death. If we have all these children who are unwanted, we're going to, incre- we're going to have a lot of child abuse cases. Statistically speaking, has the child abuse cases with less children being born into the homes where they're not wanted decreased, increased, or stayed the same? It has increased. So it hasn't solved that issue. It hasn't solved the issue of the number of deaths amongst the mothers. The number one reason for having an abortion is, I gave you several different options. Which one do you think it is? You know it's not H. I've already given you stats. It's not H. What's the number one reason? D, undesired changes that a baby will bring. F, not ready for a baby yet. Well, let me put them in their order. Okay, in all the different orders statistically, here's what you have. Financial burden of the child. It's too much. By the way, are children costly? Yeah, yeah. If you say no, you don't have children. Okay, okay. They're in a, not ready for a baby was 21%. Undesired changes. Problems in the relationship. Mother is too immature, too young. I have enough children already. Possible health concerns with the baby or involves incest or rape. That means, let's, let's be real, real blanket about it and without being you know, crass about it. That means abortion has become a form of birth control. That's what this means. Okay? It's not for health reasons, the majority, and it's not because you know, we're trying to protect the child or protect the mother from difficulties or because of rape or incest. The vast majority has to do with you know, the complications of a child. It's a birth control method. Let me, let me show you something. The number one reason stated is because of financial burden. However, those who have had abortion, these are the other percentages of it. If you look at the statistics, here's what you have. 52% of all those having an abortion make over $30,000 a year. That's not poverty level. So those who say it's, it's the poor, poor, poor class, that's not the majority of the abortions. It's in people who could afford the children. Okay? It's a matter of birth, of birth control. Under U.S. law, an abortion, before an abortion can be done, the parents of a pregnant teen, the minor, must be notified. The father of the baby must be notified, both or neither. It is neither. Neither. What this comes down to is states are setting up different restrictions and trying to prevent them. There are now 40 different states that have notification clauses that are out there. Of those 40 states that have them, that you have, the, um, you have in, in, uh, the majority of them are being taken to court saying that their notification laws are illegal. They are denying the right of the mother to choose and they're being challenged in the courts. 85% of the populace says that the 
there should be some form of fully informing the woman before an abortion to let her know of the risks that take place and of the complications. These restrictions, all of them are in court right now. The court is flooded with them, which brings me back to the idea it is so important in this election and the following ones, the judicial appointments that come from the governors, from the presidency, from the different people who are appointed in the in the um, um, executive branch, they appoint the individuals in a lot of in the in the judicial branch, and so this is critical that in this election we keep this in mind to know what do the different politicians believe and hold on this issue of abortion. What percentage of women who have abortion are single? You have the different options: forty, fifty, seventy, eighty-five. This one's pretty easy. What did you have? It's going to be the highest one, obviously, that they're single. Okay? That is, they're not married. That doesn't mean they don't live together, but they're unmarried. Okay? Let's take it a step further. What percentage of those who have an abortion develop serious physical problems afterwards? 9, 17, 36, or 50%? Serious physical problems afterwards. It's a guesstimate. Okay? It's 17%. 17%. You're almost talking one out of five that they're going to have serious physical complications afterwards. Those that have psychological problems afterwards and they seek counseling. What do you think it is? 10, 25, 40%, 60%. Okay. It is, not A, it is actually 60%. Of those who seek counseling, 30% of those report, the 30% who've had the abortion report that there is serious emotional struggles afterwards. Okay? Um, those who have an abortion we have a higher rate of complications compared to ladies in their pregnancy who have not had an abortion. Is it for female cancers, increased risk of miscarriage, low birth rate in children? Um, uh, uh, when I say low birth rate, I'm sorry, that should be uh, weight, low birth weight. Okay, I'm sorry I didn't catch it until just now. It's the weight of the children. All of the above or none of the above? It's all of the above. It's all of the above are some of the complications that there is a higher risk, two to three times higher than somebody who has not had uh, an abortion in the statistics. Which age group do you think has the most abortions? 19, the teens, those who are in their early 20s, the ones that are in later 20s. Which one? Okay. Number one group, 20 to 24-year-olds. Number two group, 25 to 29-year-olds. Number three group is the teenagers. Okay, here's a chart that gives you the different statistics. 33% are those, the ones we just said, 20 to 24, 26%. Then you have the 30 to 30-some percent. The teens are actually one of the lower groups for the abortion. Now, you want to see another statistic that, gets, you know, that it plays into this? The different race, races in America as far as who's having the abortions. The white, the black are pretty close to each other. But if you usually in most of these surveys, they combine the Hispanic and black and it becomes a little bit higher in rate by comparison. What's, uh, what I find interesting is Planned, Heritage, Planned Parenthood is the uh, largest single provider of arranging and giving uh, the abortions in America. They locate 80% of their clinics in ethnic groups, neighborhoods. Why are they targeting the ethnic groups that they put so many clinics there? 44% of all those who have had abortion in 2014 already had at least one, if not two or three already. So this is a repeat process, which would also increase all the physical health problems. Who pays for the abortions? Oh, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No. With Obamacare, 
we were told that the tax funding will not occur for abortions. That was part of, you can keep your doctor, and we will not have tax money used for paying for abortions. That was one of the promises in it. In fact, there was a bill passed that said that tax dollars can't be used inside that whole government program of providing the health care insurance. There was a bill passed that said tax dollars cannot subsidize abortions. Okay. Can you keep your own doctor? No, no. So there was other things that happened that uh, we were told the tax dollars wouldn't do it. However, the government's accountability office shows that 18 of the health insurance companies are paying for the abortions that are involved with this whole different uh, maze of, of the, um, of the uh, uh, exchange program, insurance exchange program. And so the CDC, Center of, uh, for Disease Control, says that in 2015 at least 14% of all the abortions were totally paid for by tax dollars, much less the subsidizing uh, partially. And so it's happening. Tax dollars are being used even though it's illegal. Okay, they're being used. Some folk don't care if it's legal or not. They want to get their agenda done. And so this is one of those cases that it happens. So we want to go back and we want to say, okay, what does the Bible say about this issue? What does the Bible indicate about this? It says, very clearly as we looked at this morning, that God consistently calls that life in the womb, as somebody pointed out this morning, the word fetus is a Latin word that's taking us right to the idea of offspring or children. So it's a different language that, that is saying the same thing. The children in the womb, that they were called a child by God. Jesus was called a child when he was in the womb of Mary. John the Baptist was called a child by the same words that are used in the New Testament, who or brephos, those same words used for a two-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, were used for children that were in the womb. So in other words, what we're saying is God recognizes and assigns humanity to the children in the womb. If God considers them to be a people, then we should consider them to be a people. And I'll say it again, the problem with some of this discussion is people mix up personality with personhood. They say, well, the child doesn't have personality. Yes, it's not developed, but that doesn't mean they're a person. They're still, well, they're not fully developed. Neither is a two-year-old fully developed. Neither is sometimes a 10-year-old. Not until somebody passes through that phase of puberty do they, full, they have that fully development. And then still, do we develop? We continue to develop. And so you have this argument that is a bogus argument. Then number two, we said this comment this morning. God is very concerned about pre-born children. We pointed that out by showing you several different passages where people's prophets of old, they said that when I was in the womb, God knew me. God was already designing me. God was working in my heart. Job talks about that. That God formed him and fashioned him when he was in the womb. Isaiah says that even when I was in the womb, you called me. You gave me abilities and skills and talents and within my DNA, the abilities to be able to do a ministry that was fitting with my personality to be able to be your prophet. And so he talks about that. We have Jeremiah saying that when he says to God, I can't do it. I am not a public speaker. God reminds him. When you were in the womb, I designed you. I planned you. I put you together when your substance was not yet known according to the blueprint that I had for your life. And in that blueprint, I ordained you to be a prophet, to be one of my servants. David responds that same way. David says, your hands, they made me. They fashioned me when I was yet in my mother's womb. We already talked about and read the verses here from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. I read those a few minutes ago and we highlighted those 
those thoughts that when we were in the womb, David says, God was fashioning me. When I was in the lowest parts where nobody could see me, God was putting me together. God was designing me. So we know that God cares for those children that are in the womb, that he is fashioning them, he is putting them together. He is sometimes giving them physical difficulties, physical traits that could be handicapped, that could be some type of a speaking problem, that could be uh, uh, an emotional problem or a mental problem that they cannot have processed the same way that others may process. God gave different peoples, different skill sets, and he is designing them. These are no mistakes with God. God has given those uh, gifts, abilities, talents, and sometimes he has not given them the same on the same level as others, but that doesn't mean that they're less of a person or less of a design by God. God, in his grace and in his goodness, has given these children as gifts to us, no matter what their abilities or inabilities. They are a product of the hand and the grace and the mercy of God. They are gifts from God. We go a little bit further. And if we look at some passages, and I didn't even state it, God is concerned about protecting these children. I'm going to give you three passages I'd like you to go with me and look at. And starting with one of those is Proverbs chapter 31. Now Proverbs 31, most of you would right away say, well, Proverbs 31 is talking about who? Ladies, this is the one that makes you feel guilty. The Proverbs 31 woman. It is superwoman, supergirl. It's Proverbs 31 that none of you say we can live up to. Well, that's not the full text of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, jump down. In the first part, he's talking about the authorities, the kings. And he's going to challenge the king. And he says, I want you to be very careful about something. Look at Proverbs 31, verse 8. If you don't have it, then listen closely. Open your mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. The dumb there is the people who are unable to speak for themselves. In some of your translations will be the mute. Some of your translations will be those who cannot defend themselves. Open your mouth for those people who cannot speak for themselves in the cause of all such as are appointed unto destruction. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. He is telling the kings, he is telling the authorities, they need to stand up for the people that nobody else is standing up for. The people that others want to get rid of. There is no good cause in God's mind of genocide. It is wrong. There is no idea in God's mind that we get rid of a certain class of people or a certain group of people because they aren't like us, because they don't look like us, because they're of a, of a different race or a different different hair color or a different speech pattern. He says, the leaders that I want, you kings, you better defend those people. You go out and you protect those individuals. Let's go to Psalm 82. Psalm 82, if you go backwards a little bit, he's going to talk again about the believers providing protection for those who cannot protect themselves. Psalm 82, down in verse 3. He says, defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to those who are afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Now, those are individuals that cannot solve their own problems. Those are the orphans. And in that society, back in the Bible days, some peoples were orphaned because their parents didn't want them. Some were orphaned because their parents died. Their mother died in childbirth. Whatever the reason, they were deserted. Whatever it is, he said, those are individuals that need protection. You need to protect them because they can't do it themselves. The poor can't protect themselves. They can't even give. If we were living in ancient Bible days. They can't even give the judge to listen to them. Why? Because back in ancient Bible days, the judges would listen to the people who could do what? pay them money. And so the widows, the orphans, the people who are poor and needy, they didn't get a fair hearing. Why? They didn't have money to bribe. 
They couldn't buy their cause and their case. We are very fortunate to live in a country that says there's equal justice. That was not the ancient laws of the land. It had to do with money. And he says, you who are believers, I want you to defend the cause of those who are poor and needy, those who can't speak for themselves. In Matthew chapter 18, do you remember what Jesus is talking about? He is sitting with his disciples and he puts a little child on his lap. And as the child is sitting on his lap, he's going to make some, some statements, and he includes these statements. He says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be as one of these little children. What does he mean by that? In your faith, you have to be like a child who absolutely trusts and believes and is not dependent upon your own, your own skill, your own ability. It was just what we heard this evening. When we heard the different testimonies, when Sydney gave her testimony and said that she came to a point where she realized that she could not get to heaven by herself. Ramon made the comment that by himself he had made a mess of his life. But he had to come to a place where all of a sudden I'm trusting in Jesus Christ like a little child. I am totally dependent upon him to get me into heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Not me by my baptism. Not me by my good looks, my good works. Well, good, good looks, you have already written me off on that. Okay, not me by my money or by what I do, but rather I'm going to be like a little child totally dependent. Now that's what a lot of the gist of what he says in Matthew 18. But there's more to it in Matthew 18. This is the text that he says, beware that you don't harm the little ones. Because he says there is somebody who is there with the children that he says that behold the face of the father. Do you remember what it is that the children have that is there that has an assigned one of these to the children that are in the presence of God Almighty? Do you remember what it is? It's the angels. He says, you better be careful. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven, their angels, the angels that belong to them, do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Now, before that, he has, well, actually, uh, he talks about it. Um, yeah, before that, he says, if you offend one of these little ones, he's got that little one on his lap, a child that's that young, if you hurt one of these little ones, it will be better for you that what? Oh, do you remember? It would be better for you that a millstone were hanged about your neck and what would happen? You'd be cast into the sea. That is a pretty big sinker. Okay, for those who are fishermen. That millstone could be anywhere from this size to larger size. A, con a, a, a stone that's carved into, the sh into a wheel and it would be used to roll over the grain. You've got this stone that would be anywhere, the estimates are, from 40 pounds all the way up to a couple hundred pounds. Tied around your neck and cast in the sea. It would be better for you if you harmed a little one that that would happen to you than what? than to be in the hands of an angry God who would take vengeance upon those who would hurt the children. That's his point. His point is God protects those who are unable to protect themselves. He is caring for them. He warns those who are able to think, to process, to move, to operate, to be able to do procedures. He's warning you. I'm warning you. There should be protection, God says, for the little ones who cannot protect themselves. You better do it. Otherwise, you reap what you sow. Payday someday. 
is what he gives the warning. And we talked about that a little bit more. We'll show you a little bit in a moment. God demanded legal punishment. If you have your Bible, go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 21. This is when he is setting up the Ten Commandments and the other 649 that go along with it that he put in the Old Testament, the laws of Israel. In Exodus 21, there's a text here where he talks about, okay, if you harm a child that is not yet birthed. Go there if you, if you would. Exodus 21. And um, I want to read this to you and want you to see this. Exodus 21, starting with verse 22. He is going to give this situation of people that are into an argument. Two men, can you imagine, he uses men here. Two men get into an argument, okay? And he says, if these men strive, they start wrestling around, they do something, okay? And hurt a woman who is with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow. What does he mean by that? That's an archaic way that would state it in 2016. We would say, okay, if these guys, there was somebody there, and the husband and this guy got into an argument, the wife tried to split them up, she's pregnant, she gets knocked down, and she starts to go into early labor. But nothing is, there's no problem with the child. The child doesn't suffer. The child's born prematurely, but the child has no difficulties. It says, He shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. The person who caused this, pre, this early, uh, early birth, okay, the child survived, but there may be complications. You're going to have to pay a fine. Because the well-being of that child was jeopardized. You jeopardized it. Okay, you're going to pay a fine. As the husband demands from the judges and they put that penalty. That's if the baby survives. Watch the next verse. If the baby doesn't survive, he goes on. If any mischief follow, he says, then you shall give, what's your Bible read? Life for life. If the baby is prematurely born and the baby dies... The man who instigated this wrestling match, who instigated this fight, this attack, and caused that woman to go into early labor and the baby died, that man would forfeit his life. That is because God says, a life for a life. Because God says, thou shalt not kill, and that includes infants. That includes unborn children who are caused to be birthed prematurely. In fact, there's a, there's a statement that we could just show you multiple. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of them right here. God alone is in charge of life and death. It is not for doctors to determine when we die. Okay, We understand that there's time where you may pull the plug, you may remove some of the equipment because we are just prolonging death when it is in its natural course. We understand that. Okay, but what about taking somebody's life prematurely? What about taking a child's life? Watch what God says. God says, or David writes, my times, my life is in the hand of the Lord. He determines my birth, my life, the, the days that I live. We read in Deuteronomy, see now that I myself am he, there is no other God beside me. I put to death, I bring to life. I'm in charge of how many days you live. That's what God says. We go a little bit further. We read in Job, you are the one who granted me life. You are the one who's given me that favor of being able to breathe, to be able to eat. In 1 Samuel, 
the Lord brings to death and God makes alive. It is in the, the, the times of our life, they are in his hand. He brings us down to the grave. He raises people up from illnesses. We go a step further. In whose hand is the soul of every living thing, the breath of all mankind. It's in God's hands, not mine, and it should not be in that doctor or the abortionist's hand. We go a little bit further. All souls are mine, even as the soul of the Father, so the soul of the Son is mine. And so your son doesn't belong to you. Yes, he does. I'm giving you a stewardship. But actually, he's part of my creation. And I'm in charge of that child's life. Seeing he gives to all life, breath, and all things. We go a little bit further. Whosoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That God says there is a time where there's going to be capital punishment appropriately because somebody has taken a life prematurely and it wasn't theirs to take because that person is in the image of God and that includes the unborn child. So we know that the word of God is very clear. You shall not kill. Okay, That's not ours to be able to take and kill and take life that way. It's in the hands of God. God is in charge. God gave clear warnings to those who take innocent lives. There is in, in Scripture statements made that if you take the life of the innocent, there is a warning to you. It's in Proverbs 6. These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, there are seven. Called an abomination unto him. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, okay? And a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to evil. Deuteronomy says, Cursed is he that takes reward or payment to slay an innocent person. If I were talking to a doctor who's involved with doing abortions, I'd show him this text and say, Listen, God's warning you. You should not be paid for rendering a service of murder. It's inappropriate. Without, without God's approval, you are bringing upon yourself all kinds of difficulties. Let's go to number seven. God gave clear warnings to those who stand idly by and do nothing. And do absolutely nothing while the weak and the innocent suffer. We ended this morning by showing you this passage. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know this was happening. If you're going to be like some of those who saw the concentration camps, and they said, oh, we didn't realize how bad it was going on. And we just kind of sat back, and we, we, you know, we saw the train loads of people going, but never saw them come back. And then the society says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You were supposed to speak up. Well, God says, that's right. You were supposed to speak up. Behold, we didn't know this. Does he not weigh the heart and perceive it? Does he not know who keeps watch over your soul? God knows, and he'll repay you if you do nothing. If you stand idly by, that's why I'm going to encourage you who are born again to say, use your vote to speak out, to try to protect the innocents. Why? Because God wants you to. Because they are people, they are individuals whose lives are being snuffed out way too early. You need to do something to help them out. Every life is precious to God. Therefore, every one of these lives should be precious to you and me as well. We also said that Psalm 139 indicates, and I want to take you back there as we wind down. Psalm 139 takes us back to the thought that not only is every life precious, yours is precious. God is very concerned about you. God wants to bless you. Now, you know what's amazing to me about this text? This is written by King David, or David, who's during a time of his life, he is being tracked down. He has gone through all kinds of difficulties. Here is a man who himself is going to get involved with all kinds of horrible things. And as he writes this, he says, my God, he says, you are amazing. 
And what's even more amazing is keep this in context, who is writing, what he's saying. He is saying, God, you are so amazing because you keep tabs on me. We read that this morning in verse 1. Lord, you have searched me, you know me, you know my down-sitting, you know my uprising, you understand my thoughts, even afar off, you're aware of them. You circle my path, you know my lying down. He's like the parent who's watching over that child, that he's keeping close tabs on the child. This is God to David. David says, you're always with me wherever I go. Verse 7, where should I go from your spirit? Where should should I flee? If I go up in the heavens, you're with me. If I go down into the grave, you're with me. If I take the wings in the morning and go out to the uttermost parts of the sea, you're going to be there. I can't be hidden in darkness because you see me, you care for me. Now this is a, from a believer's point of view, who is writing to his father in heaven, a, a psalm of praise and saying, God, I'm amazed how much you care for me. Let me remind you, that this is coming from a man who says, you have a design and a plan for my life. And you love me and you care for me. And I'm amazed that you gave me the abilities to think clearly so I can handle the administration. You gave me the type of personality to handle the pressures of people attacking me. The pressures, I'm not one of those that just kind of wilts under the pressure. God, you gave me the stamina to be able to do the government, to be able to lead and administrate. He goes on and he makes this comment that you think an awful lot about me. And this is where we conclude this morning, and I want to build up from. In verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more than a number than the sands of the sea. When I awake, I'm still with you. You love me. Remember, the one who was writing this, he murdered. He took life. Not of an unborn. He took life of a friend who was loyal to him. He committed adultery with that man's wife. And as a result, there was a pregnancy, they couldn't hide their adultery. So he thought that I can cover this all up and I will get rid of all this by taking that man's life, arranging that he is killed. And then after he dies, I'll take her as my wife and we'll just say that the baby's born really, really early. But God knew. And even though David tried to manipulate this, God knew. And David says, you forgave me when I repented. Is there any sin that God will not forgive when somebody repents? No, no. What about the individual who has been involved, the individual or individuals who have been involved with taking the life of an unborn child? Can they be forgiven? Yes. And David says, you still love me enough that you would forgive me? You would think about me, you would have, you would compass me about, and you would provide me forgiveness and still keep me as one of your own. That is grace. Undeserved. That is grace. That should not be abused. But it is the grace of God that stand, extends his hand to say, I love you. And I will forgive you if you are genuinely repentant. I will forgive you like I forgave that woman who came to me. She was caught in adultery, and she had multiple men in her lives. You know, they couldn't even keep track of the number of the husbands that she had. And when she was caught in the act, and she was fearful, because by law, she should have died. She should have been stoned for it. And Jesus said, I forgive you. All those who are going to accuse you, they have walked away. But, what does he say? Go and sin no more. Forgiveness does not mean a free ticket to go out and live the way you want. No. No, when we're forgiven, when we understand that God forgives us, he saves our soul, he gives us a ticket into heaven, that he loves us that much, we should desire to love him and serve him. That's exactly what David does. 
Watch how the psalm finishes out. After he talks about this idea that God is crazy about him, that God loves him so much that God would forgive him, he goes on and makes this comment. Okay, I'm going to summarize it this way. Since your life is so precious to God that he would care about you, he would watch for you, he would design you, he would even forgive you of your sin. Since God cares that much, God should be precious to you. If, that's, if you understand that you are precious to God, then he should be precious to you. How does the New Testament say it? We love him because he first loved us. When we realize how much he cares for us, how can we not but respond by saying, I love you. I care for you. That's what David does in the rest of the song. He says, you know, God, you are so gracious. You are so good. You, you, I appreciate you so much. Watch what he says. He says in verse 19, uh, I'm going to jump down, verse 20. For they speak against you wickedly, mine enemies. They take your name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate you? Am not I grieved with those that rise up against you? I will hate them with, what does your Bible read? Perfect or the appropriate hatred. I count them mine enemies. What is he saying? He is saying in this passage, I will reject all the evil that is around me. I care for you so much that I will reject the evil. Okay, here's what he's got. David in this text, he realizes, he makes a statement. There are evil people living around me. I am not going to be able to get away from them. They are a part of the world that I live in. I am not going to become some type of, of monk or monkess that lives up in a mountain and totally isolates from people because there's evil in the world. He doesn't do that. He is realistically looking at the world like you and I need to be realistic. God, you want us to live holy. The world is unholy around us. There are peoples who don't care about you. There are people who would say that what I'm preaching this evening is hatred speech. They're, they would say that what we're, what we're doing is we're promoting you know, division between people. No, 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 no. That's not what we're doing. Just the opposite. However, however, they're going to attack God. They're going to say God is cruel. God is not caring. And he says, there's those people around me. I have contact with him. They will use God's name in vain. That is, they do not respect him. They do not want to do what he says. They're going to deny his word. He knew that eventually they're going to be in real big trouble. He says, surely, verse 19, you're going to slay them. Them one day. And he says, you know, those people, they're, they're doing evil and they are going to reap what they are sowing. And you got God, he says, yeah, yeah, it's because you warn them, you care for them even, that you don't want them to continue. And so, you know, I see that. And I will warn them. He says, but I am zealously telling you between me and you, God, those individuals, I'm going to reject their influence in my life. I am not going to let them make me to think the way they think. I will hate them. That is, the idea is I am not going to prefer them. This isn't the idea that, you know, you're disgusting, you're, you're vile, you know, I want nothing to do with you. He's in contact with them. It is the idea is I'm going to make a preference. God, I will love you, prefer you. I will not prefer these people. They will not influence me. That is, I'm going to have nothing to do with their influences, with their choices. I am going to reject their thought patterns. I am going to separate them from them as much as is possible so that I don't end up thinking like them, that I don't hang around them and eventually become despiteful. They'll reject you and use the, the foul language or do the foul deeds that they did. So God, what I'm going to do in my life is you have been so, so kind to me, so gracious to me, so forgiving to me, 
I'm going to put you first. I am going to live for you and I'm going to make you my closest advisor and bestest of friends. And I want you to know that I am going to put those people way behind me and I'm going to choose you. I'm going to make you my closest friend, advisor, and guide in my life. Hey, there's a second thing he does here. He says, I'm going to reject the evil within me. Not just the evil around me, but the evil within me. What does he do in this passage? He says this, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. There was a missionary writing about when he was in the Far East. In that Middle East area. He says, this was years ago, he got into an Arab chieftain's tent. And the Arab chieftain was giving him all kinds of hospitality. And it was wonderful. And they sat there and they were eating some figs. And he says, they were huge. They were juicy. And this chieftain was saying, oh, they're the best that he's ever had. And he was enjoying them and slobbering as he was eating them. And he was encouraging this missionary, you should take some. You should take some as we sit here in hospitality. And you enjoy my company. And oh, this is wonderful. They're so good. And all of a sudden he stopped and he looked at it. Now, it's nighttime in the tent. And he looked at it, and he had a quizzical look at the fig that he was eating. And then he blew out the candles that were next to him. The tent went totally dark. The missionary was wondering, what in the world is going on? This is totally non-customary. This guy is just blown out. It's kind of dark. His eyes adjusted, and he saw the guy sitting there. Okay, the guy wasn't going to attack him. He wasn't in danger. But what is the guy doing? The chieftain reached over and grabbed some more figs and started eating them, slobbering and sucking on them and enjoying them and saying, oh, they're so good, they're so good. Finally, the, the missionary couldn't, couldn't help himself. He asked, he says, why did you blow out the candles? Oh, oh, that. I saw a worm in the fig. And if I don't see him, I'll enjoy the fig a whole lot more. Just because we don't see something doesn't mean it's good for us. But that's the way we act. We say, oh, if we just don't notice it. Well, David says, God, I want you to notice it. I want you to notice in my life. Is there anything in my life, after all you're caring for me, after you're thinking about, is there anything in my life that you don't like? Is there something that I'm doing? Is there something in my life that is displeasing to you? I want you to thoroughly, thoroughly examine me. Now, I'm going to remind you that at the moment he's writing this, he's a king. Who examines the king's life? Nobody in that culture. Nobody is given that authority. But he says, I want you with intensity. The idea in the Hebrew is really, really, really examine me. Really search me in and through and do it over and over and over. This is my prayer. Check me out. Watch me. Watch me at school. Watch me at play. Watch me at work. Lord, check me out. Know my worries. Know my concerns. Know what I think is important, what I don't think is important. God, you see if there be any harmful, anything that would bring me into any trouble or difficulty, check out my life thoroughly. Look at me. See if I have greed in my life. See if there's anger that shouldn't be there. See if I'm lacking compassion. See if I'm, if I'm gossiping about others and tearing others down. See, God, if in my heart I don't have the right attitude to somebody, you check it out. I am yours. I am going to stand here and say, God, look me over. Even though I'm a king and I have authority, God, I am your servant. You love me so much. I want to love you back. I want nothing between you and me. Check out my life. Look into me deep and take it out. If it's something that's displeasing, oh God, take it out. There's a, there's a writer that talks about him and his, his pet bird. 
He's got two of them. One's name is Coffee and one name is Charlie. He says, my, my pet finch, Coffee, runs into serious problems once in a while. His claws grow so long that the bird loses the ability to control the claws and they get stuck in the nest that's in the cage. She can't get them out. Once we found her nearly dead, hanging for hours upside down with this one claw ensnared in the wicker basket. Carol rescued my wife, rescued her, nursed the bird back to health. We decided we needed to regularly clip her claws so she could maintain better control. I reach into the door. I try to catch her, catch her while she desperately scrambles to the eight corners of the cage to escape. Once I do grip her gently in my palm, her heart is racing. I can feel it. She attempts to peck at my hand to free herself. I hold her steady, clip her nails, release her back into the safety of her cage where she gleefully flies for months, months without getting ensnared. But when the nails grow again, we have to repeat the pro- procedure. Each time, she's a panic. She's pecking. She's got all kinds of distrust. It's sad when she distrusts me. Charlie, her nestmate, seems to enjoy being held and stroked and simply receiving the care for what we give when we clip his nails. I'm afraid I'm more like coffee when God gets his grips on me. I fret. I resist. At times, I turn hostile towards him as he holds me tight and he gives me a trim. I wish I were more like Charlie. Actually... I'm really working on it. <laughs> you and I need to work on it. We need to do the third thing here that's, that's important. God loves us. Our response should be, I will relinquish all control to God. Where do I get that? Well, look at the last phrase. The last phrase, after God, you've been so caring. He said, see if there be any wicked way me, uh, in me and lead me in the way everlasting. His idea is, God, I'm submitting. I'm the king but I'm submitting to you. You love me so much, I'm going to love you back by I'm surrendering my all. I am choosing to live for you. I want you to take control. I want you to have, just just in my life, in my loves, in my lips, in whatever I do, I want you to be honored. Why? Because you love me so much, I want to love you back. That's why, did you hear the comments tonight? What did you say? You got baptized, why? Okay. Your relationship with Christ. You got baptized, you said, I think, one of you said, because it's commanded. I'm going to do this. Why? Because, God, you love me so much, I want to just do something for you. I want to give back to you. That's what David is saying. God, you care for me, you care for others. And the response of those of us who understand his care should be, wow, wow. I want to love you back. I want to love you back. Abortion is very important. It's an issue. But this whole text that talks about it drives us, you and me, to say we should be concerned about society, but even more than that, we should be concerned about our relationship with Jesus Christ. How tight are you? How close are you? He loves you. Do you consider him precious? Father, I pray that you would help us this week to honor you, to love you more than what we've done this past week. Lord, if there's some here who do not know, do not have that that absolute confidence that they are headed for heaven, I pray that afterwards they'd talk, that they would come and we'd be able to share on a personal note. Thank you for the privilege we have of knowing how much you care, not only for the unborn, but for us who are the birthed especially those who are birthed in your family. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring. Help us to love you back better this week. I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.